We are back! We are back! We are getting Doug back! And we're the three best friends that... Welcome back. Welcome back to Sports in the Waiting Room. Thank you for bearing with the Hangover reference, and thank you for bearing with me for the last few weeks. By the way, I'm Chris Russo. I'm your host. So, we have not been on in a little while. I think the last show we did was right... It was before the Super Bowl, I believe. I'll take credit. I got the... Pick right, not the score exactly, but I wasn't that far. 30 to 18, I took the Chiefs, I remember that. And I will say, I'm pretty sure beginning of the year, I took the Chiefs as well. So I'll take, but uh, not to say that that was an unpopular pick, but still noted, especially for even with all of the receiving issues that they had all year. Now, there is a, another reason, though, that I have, well, there is a reason that I have not been on that we have not put out a show for the last few weeks, and that is that I have been rather busy, particularly on Wednesdays. I could do it any given day, but I, I really have been that busy. So I started working with the New Jersey Titans of the North American Hockey League as a color commentator, public address announcer for... But not only their North American Hockey League team, but their North American Three Hockey League team. Junior hockey is very strange compared to other sports, compared to baseball in the United States, football, basketball, the way those players make it to the major leagues. Hockey is very different. It's a lot... The, the, the tiering is well different. So North American Hockey League is tier two... In, in the hierarchy of USA Hockey, and it is one of two Tier 2 leagues, and there's no Tier 1, the only Tier 1 league is the USHL, which is out in the Midwest, so this is one of the best junior hockey programs you can find in the area. Very proud to say I get to work with an organization now that has... Well, that's not true. I, I already have worked with an organization with the 87s. And, and by the way, I am going to continue to work with the 87s. And the, the Titans have been rather accommodating in my schedule, my ability to work with the 87s, because I have made a commitment to them. And it's, it's I'm able to work a lot of games for both teams. But... Yeah, a lot of changes happening. I'm, I'm very grateful to my broadcast partner, Anthony DiPaolo, who had actually brought me on to work a handful of games with the Titans when I was in college, still, when I was with WSOU, when I was at Seton Hall. Anthony's another Seton Hall WSOU alum. And Anthony, of course, I'm not even going to say he's coming with me. He brought me along back to the Titans. And I'm very, very flattered. I'm thankful to him, grateful to... Zach McGinnis, who is not only the, the lead play-by-play -play broadcaster, but also does so many other things that if you work with the Titans or if you're a fan of the Titans, you might not realize how much he actually does. I'm grateful to Craig Doremus, Bobby Dorico, Kyle Shapiro, the coaching staff, uh, also Andre Kapranov and Ileana Trubaleha with the North American Three team. The players have been very kind to me. And I'm very, very grateful to be working here. It's a, a league that has earned a lot of respect. A lot of players have gone to, a lot of players on the roster now 
are committed to play for D1 programs. A lot of players from this team have gone on to NCAA, be it at Division Three, Division Two, Division One, or there are some players that have actually come out of the North American Hockey League to play in the NHL. And if we're going back far enough, I'm very excited to say that even you know, at, the, at the very beginning of the, of the league's history, when it was under a different name, that even Hockey Hall of Famers like Pat LaFontaine and Mike Medano have come out of this league, and Bob Costas once broadcast for a, a team that was once in this league. And so I am very grateful for the opportunities, and I'm very grateful to Call Games for this team, which is the only one pretty much in this area of the country to have won the Robertson Cup, the title from the North American Hockey League, and that was just two years ago. So very grateful to the Titans organization, very grateful to the 87s organization who has been very understanding and, and accommodating as well. I'm actually getting prepared to call an EHL showcase this weekend in Aston, Pennsylvania, an EHL and EHLP showcase this weekend in Aston, Pennsylvania. And regardless of where the 87s end up, although I would not be surprised if they end up in Providence again. Regardless of where they end up, Anthony DiPaolo and I are fortunate enough that we will be on the call for the EHL and EHLP Frozen Finals in Providence yet again. So, so many good things going on, and I yeah I know it's the cliche, oh, I feel so blessed, but I, I do feel very, very grateful and very appreciative. And that's the reason why we have not been on for the last, I think it's four weeks since we last had an episode, but we will talk about the Super Bowl for a quick second. Incredible game. I I think there's maybe a little too much flack being put on the Niners for for taking the ball in overtime. That could be because I'm not the most analytical of people, but the the fact that some of the players did not know the rules is did not know the the new overtime rule is outrageous and does, does say something about Kyle Shanahan. Look, this is not nearly as bad as the Falcons blowing the Super Bowl because Shanahan wouldn't stop calling passing plays. But this was a very disappointing for Niners fans. Now, Chiefs also earned it. Travis Kelsey has put his stamp on as, at the very least, he's at the very least in the Mount Rushmore of tight ends. I'd probably argue he's top. I'd argue he's better than Gronkowski at this point because they have... Gronkowski does have one more Super Bowl, maybe a slight asterisk because of Deflategate anyway, but Kelsey has already has better regular season numbers in about the same, if not the same amount of games. I think that he might have played fewer seasons, but he already has better regular season numbers with the exception of touchdowns, and he definitely has better postseason numbers now. So I would take Kelsey. And at this point, Patrick Mahomes, in terms of titles, all time, not just Super Bowl titles, but all time, just based on that alone, is at, at least a top 10 quarterback because very few QBs have won more championships. I think it's, I had this list off the top of my head. Tom Brady has seven, of course, a couple of asterisks perhaps, but Joe Montana has four, Bradshaw has four, Bart Starr has five total, Otto Graham has three, Depend, but you know it, if you don't count the AAFC titles, which would be would be seven, you have Sid Luckman had four with the Chicago Bears. 
and I think the only other one off the top of my head is, well, Johnny Unitas won three and went to the same amount of championship games and I think went to the same amount of what would today be considered conference championship games. So I, he's kind of on par with him at this point. And then I think I had one more. Yeah, so, yeah, the other one was Red Dunn, who has four titles. A lot of people do not realize Red Dunn was essentially in a time where a quarterback was used a lot less in terms of throwing the football. Red Dunn was the closest thing to a starting quarterback for the Green Bay Packers for three of their championship teams in the late 20s and early 30s, and he won a championship with the Chicago Cardinals, I believe. So Mahomes is at the very least... In terms of overall postseason success, a top 10 quarterback of all time. However, he is the first quarterback to win Super Bowl MVP in each of his first three Super Bowl victories. Now, he's played in four Super Bowls, yes, but Tom Brady won MVP for the first Super Bowl, won it for his second. Deion Branch won it for his third. And then, of course, Brady lost his fourth. Montana won MVP for his first, won MVP for his second. Jerry Rice won MVP for his third, Montana for his fourth. So, I mean, Patrick Mahomes has probably already placed himself, truthfully, not even in terms of just postseason success, he probably already is a top 10 quarterback of all time. And you can make an argument that he's top five, maybe on the Mount Rushmore already. Because I can make a very good argument that he's, you know, he's only played seven seasons. But you look at the success and you factor in two league MVPs, which I, I, in terms of guys on that list that I just brought up, I think it's only Brady, Unitas, and Montana who have actually won two league MVPs. And Unitas finished with three, Brady finished with three, Montana finished with two. And Montana didn't win those two until 12 years into his career. Brady didn't win his second MVP until I think 11 years into his career. Mahomes is only his seventh year in. And so Mahomes is so Mahomes is on pace not only to be the greatest quarterback of all time, but maybe to be the greatest player in the history of the sport. I mean, he could end up with honestly, if he ends up with five, I might call him the best, considering some of the things you know, some of the asterisks with Brady. But it's it's incredible what he's done, and to make Nicole Hardman the hero. Mahomes, by the way, everybody remembers. You know, a lot of people don't remember, actually. Tom Brady led the Patriots to an overtime win in the Super Bowl. Johnny Unitas led the Colts to an overtime win in the NFL championship game. Patrick Mahomes is the first quarterback to throw to throw a touchdown. He completed the first passing touchdown to walk off an NFL championship game. Because remember, Unitas handed off to Amici, and it was Brady tosses to White. Mahomes is the first person ever to do that, which is incredible in itself. And he played a very strong game. The offensive line does need a little improvement, probably. And they've let go of Marquez Valdez-Stantling, as we'll discuss a little later on. But it's Mahomes did definitely deserve Super Bowl MVP. And you, you can say it, he earned all three of them. It's unbelievable to think that he is on a list with, really climbs up the same list with Tom Brady and Joe Montana as the only quarterbacks, now the only quarterbacks to have won at least 
three Super Bowls and three Super Bowl MVPs and finished with two league MVPs. Of course, Montana won four times. Uh, one Super Bowl, rather won the Super Bowl four times. Brady won seven times, and Brady won three MVPs instead of three regular season MVPs instead of two, and of course won five league MVPs. So there's still some things to look forward to, but my goodness, Patrick Mahomes, and and they are they very well could win again. They very well could win three in a row. You can see it. You can see it happen. And most of the guys on that list, I think that I brought up. I know Brady won multiple titles in a row, obviously. Montana did. Unitas did. Starr did. Dunn did. I, uh, I'm i not sure if Graham did. Well, Graham technically did with the AAFC anyway. Bradshaw did twice. And so it's that that's that's on top of it. It's it's insane. I do have to say I've had you have you get a lot of time and at times you're you're I'm working on notes and I got a little just bored and I started working on an all-time NFL team. And so I'm just kind of venting here at this point. I'm going to well not venting because it's not I'm I'm going on here. I'm going on and on but I actually have an all-time NFL team that includes a practice squad, a certain list of players on the practice squad, and I have a head coach and a GM and a defensive coordinator. I don't really know where I go with the rest of it, but but there's more I could do, honestly. So I did it in a depth chart type situation, and I did it based on the depth chart of the San Francisco 49ers, who at the time were the higher-ranked Team. This was before the Super Bowl that I actually did this, and I figured what what would be done by today's standards. Now there there were probably some snubs. I think one snub in particular, but that's kind of be based on necessity. You'll understand in a little bit. So the all-time NFL team quarterbacks. You can all, Niners have three on the depth chart. So I said Tom Brady, Joe Montana, Peyton Manning. Pretty fair. Mahomes has put himself in that list. We'll talk a little more. On the, the practice squad, on the practice squad, pretty much I did, I think it was 14 players, and probably the essentially the best player available. Best player available, but only one in each position. So the quarterbacks were Brady Montana and Manning on the regular roster. The running backs were Walter Payton, Barry Sanders, and Emmett Smith. Now, if you're older, you're wondering Jim Brown, Jim, Jim Brown is the fullback. The wide receiver group, there's a, there's a group of six, Jerry Rice, Larry Fitzgerald, Randy Moss, Terrell Owens, Calvin Johnson, and Marvin Harrison. That's the group. Tight ends, there are four, Tony Gonzalez, Kellen Winslow, Travis Kelsey, and Rob Gronkowski. Now, again, some of these groupings, it could be honestly 1 and 1A one because that running back group is very difficult. Honestly, that running back group is so difficult to determine because... You know, Peyton had the records. Barry Sanders probably would have had the records. Emmett Smith has the records. Jim Brown is the only player ever to have a hundred or more yards per game as a as a non-quarterback, at least. Only player with a hundred all-purpose well, a hundred all-purpose yards per game. You know, besides a quarterback, or unless you count a punter or a kicker, I suppose, or a returner. So that in itself is ridiculous. And then the receivers, that's generally about right. Honestly, Calvin, sorting Calvin Johnson and that Fitzgerald, Moss, Owens group 
is a little difficult because Johnson played few. Sorting Johnson is almost like sorting Brown because he played only nine years. In the same, so it's each of them only played nine years. So it's a little more difficult. The tight ends, Kelsey and Gronkowski are kind of up there. Kellen Winslow, I put as high as, as he is because you do adjust for the era a bit. You can only do so much, but it's true. So O-line, left tackle, I put Anthony Munoz and Jonathan Ogden. I put Munoz a little head ahead because he, this this really is 1-1A one and one a because Ogden didn't play as many years. Munoz is a little higher up in terms of approximate value, which is, you know, the football equivalent of war, but that's 1-1A. One one Bruce Matthews and Randall McDaniel at left guard. Jim Otto is, there was only one center on the roster, so Jim Otto is the center. And the long snapper, just to save space here, and so we can put a long snapper on. Figured to throw Jim Otto in there. Right guard, Will Shields and Jerry Evans. Right tackle, Ron Yari and Jackie Slater. Defensive ends, we sorted by... Defensive end and defensive tackle, we sorted by side. We didn't do an all-purpose defensive ac- uh, defensive end for, for any given side. So left defensive end, Reggie White, Michael Strahan, Carl Eller. Right defensive end, there are only two, Bruce Smith and Jim Marshall. Left defensive tackle, Mean Joe Green, Aaron Donald, and Merlin Olsen. I know you're going to, you might say Aaron Donald's won three Defensive Player of the Year awards, but I still give the edge to Mean Joe Green, especially because he anchored the defense to four titles in particular. And he was the, probably the one, the revolutionary figure in terms of defensive tackles, being able to rush, rush the passer. Right defensive tackles, Alan Page and Bob Lilly. A lot of people might not realize Alan Page is one of only two players since the AP NFL MVP award was invent- was created. He's only one of two players on defense to win that award. The other one is the first outside linebacker and the best defensive player of all time, Lawrence Taylor. Now, they classified here by outside. I think they classified by it different how they do it. So I just went by outside linebacker and middle linebacker. So, outside linebacker, Lawrence Taylor, Ray Lewis, and Derek Thomas. I say that because you might think of Ray Lewis as middle linebacker. It turns out all these guys played more years as outside than they did middle. And that's why middle, I actually went I actually went with three different... They're all Bears. Middle linebacker, Mike Singletary, Dick Buckus, and Brian Urlacher. Buckus is also difficult because he played fewer years and for some bad teams, but I'm putting him up there because he deserves it. At corner, I had... Now you're gonna you're gonna understand in a second why I have left cornerback. It's three players: Rod Woodson, Charles Woodson, and Champ Bailey. Makes sense. Now I'm gonna skip the to the right cornerbacks to later. And that's because I saved them and I'm putting them also in the return unit, so they're a little later. At strong safety: Ken Houston and Donnie Shell. Free safety: Ronnie Lott and Paul Krause. The punter and and holder is Jeff Fiegels. The kicker is Adam Vinatieri. I know you could say Tucker, but Vinatieri is so successful in the postseason, that's what puts him over the top. It's kind of like saying Tom Brady versus Drew Brees, where Brees is very close, statistically speaking, in the regular season, and you could argue that he's even got a better arm, a better deep ball, but Brady is so much more successful in the postseason. Now, I have at right corner, two players at right corner, it's Deion Sanders, the best corner ever, and Daryl Green. I also have them listed as punt returner and kick returner. Now, I know you could think it's true. Devin Hester is undoubtedly the best return man ever, but 
when you looks when you look at that Niners roster, it's also lined up to where there's not someone specifically designated only to be a returner, to returner and a receiver, and the receiver position obviously is more important, especially in today's game. The receiver position is more important, and while Devin Hester was a good receiver, good all around player, he played some corner I think too. You're not putting Devin Hester on the all-time team just as a receiver. So I, I, but he is on the practice squad. I'll tell you in a second. So the practice squad at QB is Johnny Unitas. The running back is Marshall Falk. One again, one one guy at each position. It's the best guy. It's the I think it was the 14 guys. The best guys available for the limited spaces on the practice squad, but no more than one player per position. So it's Johnny Unitas at quarterback, Marshall Falk at running back, Reggie Wayne at wide receiver, Jason Witten at tight end, Orlando Pace at left tackle, John Hanna at left guard, Mike Webster at center. Again, there's not a player for every position, so no other O-lineman, but you have Junior Seau at outside linebacker, Bobby Wagner at middle linebacker. Hear me out just because his approximate value is that high, and he has made that many Pro Bowls, and I know he's not the most valuable player on that defense, but I, you could make the argument. Look at his stats, and based on that, you can make the argument. And the same goes for Calais Campbell, who I have at left defensive end. Now, right defensive end, Jason Taylor. Right defensive tackle, Randy White. Left cornerback, and I don't know him well enough. This is not the same as the Cowboys coach, by the way, but I did this based on stats. Jimmy Johnson, different Jimmy Johnson, by the way. Right cornerback, Rondé Barber. The kicker is Justin Tucker. And the punt and kick returner is Devin Hester. The head coach is Vince Lombardi. The GM is Paul Brown. The DC is Bill Belichick. I don't really know where I'd go for an OC or if I had to specify in a position, position coaches or if I had to specify into an owner. Truth is, the best owner would probably actually be the general public because that owns the Packers and the Packers are the most successful team in the history of the NFL. Now, we will transition to current events. Normally, I actually would have gone to, for what I have, I would have gone to hockey first, but there is a little bit of football stuff, and I'll just stick with it because we have discussed it a little bit. But, first off, we'll talk about the the Chiefs, actually. Chiefs did a couple of things. They do release Marquez Valdez-Scantling after two seasons in Kansas City. The Chiefs as a team had a lot of drops this year, and even Travis Kelsey was one of those people. But the brunt of that frustration was understandably dealt upon Marquez Valdez-Scantling. He had a lot of drops. He was the he was the guy who dropped the most. But to his credit, he did make a touchdown catch in the Super Bowl this year, Super Bowl 58. He won two Super Bowls. And do you remember, he was still an important piece last year because Tyreek Hill was already gone. This is a Chiefs receiving core that is becoming more like old New England where it's a lot of guys that do their job, whether it's Valdez Scantling or Nicole Hardman or Rasheed Rice, I think is pretty strong. And Justin Watson, I Justin Watson, I think has a good future as well. But... You know, the, the the Chiefs, in terms of a wide receiver, don't necessarily have a number one guy. That might be where they go in the draft. I don't know. But understandable. But Valdez Scantling, again, to his credit, 
won a Super Bowl in each of his two seasons with the Chiefs, and did also make the icing catch in the 2023 AFC Championship game against the Ravens. They went to him, he delivered, but ultimately this is the right move for them. Now, of course, the Chiefs have gotten so much better defensively. The The first Super Bowl they won, the 31-20 to game, they really contained the Niners, especially late in the second half. Second one was a shootout, but of course they did have that fumble return touchdown against the Eagles. And, you know, the Eagles also converted on a two-pointer, two so that score is a little skewed for that defense and what actually happened. But then, of course, this year they let they only let up 19 points in regulation, 22 in total, including the, the drive in overtime, created, I think, at least one turnover and probably also gave up some points from a... I think also gave up some points from a Kansas City, or rather, a, a, yeah, a Kansas City turnover, as a matter of fact. So this Chiefs squad has said that they are willing to tag Legereus Sneed. That would be approximately $19 million, although both parties are open to a trade if they're unable to agree to a deal. Now, the news coming out today, as I'm recording, Wednesday, February 28th, the Chiefs have allowed Sneed to seek a trade. Now, before we speculate a little bit. We'll get to his, accol his accolades. He has 10 interceptions in 57 regular season games with the team over four years. That's pretty good. That's over 14 games a season. Two or three picks a year, pretty good, especially considering that's a good number for someone who is not targeted as much. That's, that's very important. Two Super Bowl titles, three AFC championships, and, of course, forced the fumble on the goal line in the 2023 AFC Championship game. Just punched that ball loose from Zay Flowers. So one of the best corners in the league and is a, going to be a valuable asset wherever he ends up or if he ends up still in Kansas City. We'll see. You never know. He is a native. I always like to bring up the where guys are from because truth is you want to go home. He is a native of Minden, Louisiana, which is Closer to Dallas than it is to, to New Orleans, but the Cowboys, to be fair, will probably be very low on cap space because they have to sign Dak Prescott to a boatload of money, and the truth is, maybe even more valuable, they'll have to sign CeeDee Lamb to a boatload of money. However, the Saints, I think, could make that move, and that would also be really interesting because they'd be putting him across from Marshawn Lattimore, and that would make them probably the best secondary in the league. Now, their, their bigger issue, of course, is at quarterback, considering where what Derek Carr has done this year could be maybe a, too big a luxury luxury for them, but it's still, it still would be a move that would drastically improve their team. One more thing I do want to note in the NFL, and that is that the Jets have released guard Lincoln Tomlinson. Makes perfect sense that O-line... I can't even say underperformed just because they were they were maybe expected to be pretty bad anyway. But frankly, if Aaron Rodgers gets hurt in the first four games, although I or first four snaps, although I do partially blame the turf, you know, that's that's underperforming. I would have to I would have to imagine. I I've heard multiple people say Look, you're kind of better off if you got hurt earlier in the year just because how 
healthy was he, was he going to stay behind that line anyway? So that's that. The truth is, at this point, the Jets will have to build their offensive line around Elijah Vera Tucker, and that's 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 pretty much all that's there. Maybe Wes Schweitzer. Apparently, they're the only two players on the Jets O-line who have 20 or more appearances to this point with the, of course, and of course, Dwayne Brown, I don't know how they possibly expected they were going to rely on him at his age did not make any sense. So that's a move that they had to make. They will lose 10 million in dead cap, but they will ultimately save the remaining eight on his contract by cutting him. Moving over to the NHL, Nathan McKinnon continues his hunt for somehow. I, I can't believe he's never won. I don't think he's ever won the Hart Trophy, despite the fact that he's probably the second best player in the world. He extends his home point streak to 29 games with a goal and an assist in a win over the Dallas Stars. Huge victory for Colorado in addition to continue their ride through a very tough Central Division. And another Stanley Cup contender in the Dallas Stars, McKinnon had 61 points, or has had 61 points during this stretch of 29 games, which is, again, more than two points a game. That's ridiculous. That's the sixth longest home point streak in NHL history, and it's the longest since Mario Lemieux with 31 games in 1995-96. Wayne Gretzky, of course, holds the record, unsurprisingly. 40 games, although rather surprisingly, with the Kings in the 88-89 campaign. Might have extended a little bit, as a matter of fact. Kale McCarr in this game also became the highest-scoring defenseman in the history of the franchise. This includes when they were the Quebec Nordiques. So, most points ever by an Avalanche and or Nordiques defenseman with 308 passing Tyson Berry, that's a bit impressive when you factor in their rather deep defense core historically, of course, including guys like Eric Johnson and I believe Jack Johnson for a time, as a matter of fact, as well. And Adam Foote would be another big one. So that's significant. Kale McCarr already, well, think about it, he's the only defenseman to win the Conn Smythe Trophy with Colorado. So that's it in itself right there. And he's already probably among the best defensemen in the history of the Central Division. So a remarkable, remarkable achievement. And he is very early on in his career as well, already having won the Norris once. Now, speaking of the Central Division, the Winnipeg Jets are tied for the division lead with Dallas as I speak. And the Jets earlier, or very recently, but earlier in the season, essentially implored their fans, called on their fans to return to games. Believe it or not, for as strong as I would argue Winnipeg is as a hockey hotbed, the average attendance of 13,140 fans is not full. It's it's a 15,225 seat building that is Canada Life Center over the last three years, so post-COVID. And of course, 
nobody could go to any games or no fans could go to any games in the, at the end of the 2019-2020 season, so the 2020 playoffs. And for much of the much of the 2020-2021 season either nobody could go or at most 25% could go. And in Canada, it was extremely restrictive to the point that, remember, it was a miracle that they even got, what was it, like not even a 1,000 fans, I think, for Game 7 of the first round between the Maple Leafs and the Canadiens. I don't even remember the last time Toronto and Montreal played each other in the playoffs before then, which was... Remarkable. It's the it's the most. I know people think of Montreal and the Bruins probably as the best NHL rivalry, but statistically speaking, in terms of success, those are the two most the two winningest teams in the history of the sport, combining for thirty seven championships. So it's remarkable that under a thousand people were at that game. They were all. I think they were all on the front lines. I think they were all frontline workers. Doctors, nurses, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, medical professionals. But that was remarkable because a lot of things had opened up. I remember actually at that point that not too far from me, I believe the was the first game of the Knicks Hawks series in 2021. Half the not to be fair, half the building was vaccinated, but half the building at least was full. There was one half of the building that was all vaccinated, and then the other half was little more spread out with either vaccinated or unvaccinated people. And so there was, there must've been like 15,000 people in the building. And so that in itself was remarkable in a, in a larger and in a smaller, more densely populated country. But the, the fact that that had happened, that's hurt Canada or it's hurt Winnipeg at least over time. This is a Winnipeg team that 13 years ago, when they brought brought the National Hockey League back to Winnipeg, this place was mad for it, and they continued to sell tickets. But it seems like they are down to, I think it was about 9,000, between 9,000 and 10,000 season tickets. And that is, you know, previously I think they were at 11, maybe even 13 and so the last three years, COVID really hit the Winnipeg Jets hard. And, you know, a lot of people, Canada, it's always the joke in Canada that Toronto is the center of the universe. There are some places like Toronto or Vancouver that rely so much on the film industry in, in recent years where film and TV is not just gone to Los Angeles, but a lot of people have filmed in Atlanta, a lot of people have filmed in Toronto, Vancouver, there have been big tax credits there, I believe, and when you have Winnipeg, some of these places in the middle of Canada, or out in the prairies, like Winnipeg, hockey is even more important in terms of what's available on a cultural landscape. And a credit to Commissioner Bettman, who has, who was part of a, a press conference this week with, with Jets Brass, calling the city of Winnipeg, quote, a strong NHL market, unquote, in following up on the Jets imploring fans to return to games. 
And so I, I hope that this continues, that more people buy seats in Winnipeg because it's bad enough we saw the game leave Winnipeg, the, the, the professional game leave Winnipeg at some point. And it's also terrible that the game left Quebec City. I know, I know there, I know there, are, I know there are some others that were in a pre-original six, like you know, I think there was like Hamilton and you know a couple of the original Ottawa Senators, etc. But some places, especially, need their teams. Winnipeg is one of them. Winnipeg absolutely needs the Jets, and people want to keep them there. So the fact that there have been rumors going around that they will leave is very disappointing. So, and a credit to the league for making sure that hockey stays there. It's also a, a Jets team that's really good this year. Really good. Among the te- best teams in the NHL. Now, in terms of fan participation, that's all. That's you know a bit disappointing. We turn to college basketball. Duke head coach John Shire, or for the men's program at least, Duke head coach John Shire and Kansas's head coach Bill Self are among coaches calling for court-storming bans. Now, the Atlantic 10, the Big East, Big South, Big 10, Big 12, Conference USA, the Mideastern Athletic Conference, the Pac-12, the WAC, the SEC, and the West Coast Conferences have all told ESPN that a home team for a court-storm could be subject to a fine. However, the ACC is not part of that list. And the Associated Press says that the ACC does not intend to fine Wake Forest, despite, if you did not hear, despite, of course, projected lottery pick Kyle Filipowski suffering an ankle injury in the midst of a court storm following Wake Forest's home upset of Duke. Now, I think Penny Hardaway, of course, now the head coach at Memphis, probably said it best when he said students are, quote, trying to let the players see them or to say something to them, unquote. So I I personally, historically, love the court storm. It's a really fascinating thing. I honestly even remember I did the end zone camera for my high school football team. And well, this was to pretty much for team footage. Well, it wasn't for it wasn't for an actual broadcast, it was for team footage. But it was a good way to get started. And I remember I had a teacher from my K through eight school who's also one of the coaches for the high school team and helped me coordinate all of the camera work. And he eventually said after immediately after a game that my high school team had won and they were storming the field, he said, Go ahead, go on and I'll take care of the camera. And so I, I did that, and it was a really cool experience. That can be a very incredible, memorable experience for so many students across the country, especially for an upset. Really only for an upset. But there's a reason that it's been banned for all the professional sports. Pretty much every other every other sport, essentially. At least in the United States and Canada. 
Now, maybe if you see a soccer match in Europe or South America or something to that extent, you might still see things like this, but unfortunately, a lot of times that leads to violence, or it stems from violence in the first place. And for many years, you know, you can watch an old game, you can watch, say, for example, Chris Chambliss hits his pennant-winning home run for the Yankees against the Kansas City Royals in 1976, and you see people coming around and trying to shake his hand around the bases, which just seems odd, it just seems bizarre and unsafe by today's standards. But the thing is, you so much more have to be safe. I like to think that people are still inherently good, but as the population grows, there are a lot of people who are idiots, and a lot of people who are immature, cruel, dumb. And I can tell you, there were a lot of people who were... There are a lot of stupid people between the ages of 18 and 21. I'm not saying that's the general thing, but some people are stupid. Some people are, are stupid in the best way, but some people just make terrible mistakes, terrible decisions at that age. I'm not even saying Filipowski was hurt intentionally, but sometimes that does happen. People have done stupid things. And this is an outlier. There's a reason people don't storm the court now at the end of the NBA Finals outside of media or family members. Same goes for World Series. Not is barely even like that anyway. It only really happens NBA Finals and Super Bowl, and it's only to people who are allowed to be there. And look, this is on Wake Forest. I know there isn't. this is also on the ACC because they haven't set this precedent. This is on the NCAA because they haven't set a precedent for these sorts of things. But if you're the ACC, if you're the NCAA, if you're the Wake Forest, you have to know better because you are responsible for those kids on the floor. It's your security staff that's there. I know, you, I know, you know how many security guards can you possibly have for thousands of people in the building, but... It's it's irresponsible. It's irresponsible, and it could cost someone not only their career and a living, perhaps if they make it further, or even not from an NBA, even from from perhaps just endorsements, just NIL. But I mean, it's the closest thing in sports, at least in North America, that you have to a stampede. It could cost somebody their life. I hate to say it, but it's true. It's absolutely true. And something has to be done about that. And speaking of idiocy, Texas holds on. I'm not saying Texas is stupid, but there, there, is, there is some idiocy in this story. University of Texas men's basketball holds on for an 81-69 win at Texas Tech. The game, unfortunately, though, was overshadowed by Texas's Brock Cunningham and his hip check of Darian Williams for which he received a flagrant two and, a, and an ejection, rightfully. However, there was a technical foul assessed against Texas Tech for the crowd chucking debris onto the floor continually over multiple stretches. This is unacceptable in spite of Cunningham's unacceptable actions. Now, look, I've said before, I am, at times, I am understanding of people who tend to throw things if there's a poor call if it's not in the direction of any particular person. 
if it's into an open area. I feel bad for, you know, the people who have to clear th clean things up, but it's especially unacceptable to, and just dumb to throw things for no good reason, really. Cunningham did a stupid thing, and he acted stupid, but he was ejected. That's that's the punishment right there. And they started throwing things before, I think they started throwing things even before he was ejected, when they were still reviewing it, which is outrageous. And just dumb. Now, I think this also could stem from possible frustration regarding Texas leading for the SEC last season. Texas Tech fans just getting their frustrations out the last time they'll face each other, at least for a while. But it's still un unacceptable whatsoever in otherwise a very interesting game. And Texas Tech nearly came back. Nearly came back and won this game. This is a 25-point game, actually, when the foul took place, but if, and it ended up being a 12-point game. So, you know, t Texas Tech and their coaching staff pretty much said it best that you're only hurting the team. And that's a point where if you're Texas Tech, you say, hey, you know, we still got some time. This game's not over. It's not worth it to throw things on the floor. Now, speaking of the Big 12, actually, there is a huge win for the Big 12 newcomers. BYU stuns number 7 Kansas 76-68 at Allen Fieldhouse for the Jayhawks' first home loss in 19 games. It's also the first home loss with a halftime lead for them in 82 games, the first home loss against an unranked opponent in 67 games. Now, Kansas was without projected first-round pick Kevin McCullough Jr. for the fifth consecutive game, although credit to Bill Self, who did not use that as an excuse, who said, that I, I might give him a little flack for saying that he said he felt it coming, felt this game coming from warm-ups and how they did not look particularly great during pregame, but even though that's not necessarily the attitude you want to have, hindsight's 2020, and a ton of credit for not using being without your star player as an excuse. Because you're still the number seven team in the country, you're at home, you're against a team that's brand new to the conference. That is a good sign for the Big 12 that BYU can be a good replacement. And it's a good sign for the sport. Good sign for, for NCAA men's basketball as well. Moving on actually to the pro game, Max Struess hit a 59-footer to give the Cavaliers a 121-19 win over the Mavericks. He hit five three-pointers in the last four minutes of the game, by the way. He's the fourth player to do that in the last quarter century. And he hit four of them in a span of just 67 seconds. This is the second longest game-winning three-pointer ever. Ever. It's the second, or the second longest buzzer-beating three-pointer ever. And I specify that because there may have been some in the pre-three-point era, which would have been 1981, I believe it came into the NBA. But Devontae Graham holds the record with 61 feet in a game just two, a little over two years ago. 61-foot shot for the Pelicans to beat the Oklahoma City Thunder on December 15th, 2021. I will say I, when I was at Seton Hall, I of course saw Max Struess and called some games. I don't think I called a game against DePaul, at least on play-by-play -play or color, but I certainly worked a number of Seton Hall-DePaul games. And he is the continuation of the big man shooter. 
He does not necessarily play on the level of a Nikola Jokic or a Joel Embiid, but he is a very underappreciated player and fits into what's been a very good system in Cleveland that has only improved after a first-round loss last year. Very good talent, very good team. Also, in the women's game, WNBA MVP Brianna Stewart re-signs with the Liberty on a one-year non-guaranteed deal, which is remarkable. It's unfortunate for the sport that even she, even the MVP, is getting a non-guaranteed deal. Because she, I, it's unbelievable how important she is to the organization and to the sport. It is below the max salary, and as much as I criticize the inordinate amount of spending that has been done, I'm, this is not even a government thing or a political thing, I just mean we as people spend far too much now. But I, that that has really that that's part of a big part of what's caused inflation in the first place. It is outrageous that she is not making the max salary. She's she's making below the max salary this year. To her credit, though, she has done that to allow the team to shape a better roster. She helped lead the Liberty to their first WNBA Finals appearance in 21 years last season. This is a franchise that has transformed. Moving from Madison Square Garden to the Barclays Center, really just going through a ton of changes in terms of roster, style, style, a number of different things, and somehow come through okay and even very well on the other side of it. So it's, it, it's again, they're going one year at a time, but this is a team that is built perhaps to win a title, and it will be... Not squarely on her shoulders. They got a lot of good players on that team, including Sabrina Ionescu, but the bulk of the weight will go onto her shoulders. And the last thing I'll bring up before we go, Shohei Otani homers in his Dodgers spring training debut out in Arizona. Now, spring training games are not necessarily the best indicator of success, but to their credit, the Dodgers are the best team in the Cactus League right now at 5-0, and as I speak, they are the only unbeaten team remaining in spring training this year. Orioles are at 5-1, leading the Grapefruit League. Mets right behind them at 4-1. Reds and the defending world champion Rangers sit at 3-1 each. Best win percentage for each of them, or best win percentage in the Cactus League below the Dodgers. That does it for us this week. We will be back next week and for many weeks to come here on Sports in the Waiting Room. We'll see you next time.